How is everybody? You guys doing okay? Good? Good? That was, that was pretty lame. But anyways, so uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, we, 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 we have quite a bit of ground to cover today, so I, I, we don't have any time for any of my hilarious anecdotes or, or great stories. We have to get to the word stop. <laughs> you didn't clap and then I got booed. We're, we're off on a bad foot today. So some, some good news. If you were not here last week, uh, between our four campuses, we baptized 188 people. That's good. I, I think this campus was 160 of those, so that's pretty good. It's a lot of people just at this campus. So um, thank you for coming and supporting that if you are here last week. Those are great weekends. Really uh, a ton of great stories, and, and that's pretty awesome. So, okay, on that note, we are back in 1 Samuel. If you've never been here before, we go through whole books of the Bible. We've been working through an Old Testament book. And again, I, I say this kind of stuff, and I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but sometimes people when they hear you're going to do Old Testament books, they're like, oh, you know, those are boring, and they're not. Uh, they're pretty, in fact, today we're going to talk about hacking someone to pieces. That's, that's in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. That's hacking someone to pieces is not boring. So we will, not that we should ever figure that out. But anyways, this is a rough start to the 10 o'clock, guys. But two weeks ago, we were in chapter 14 as we're working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And in chapter 14, we see a couple of interesting things. We, we've been predominantly focused around two main characters, Saul, who is the first king of Israel, and Samuel, who is a prophet and was formerly a, a judge, one of the judges over Israel. And so in chapter 14, we're then introduced to, to another interesting figure in, in the book of 1 Samuel, Jonathan, who is the son of Saul. And we find out that Jonathan is nothing like his dad. He is a man of integrity, he is brave, he is not selfish, and the most important thing about Jonathan is he inquires of God and listens to the will of God. And in chapter 14, God, uh, Jonathan asks God, hey, if you want me to go to battle with the Philistines, the Philistines were, were starting to attack the Israelites, he said, if you want me to do this, give me a sign. And he sees a sign from God, and Jonathan goes in virtually single-handedly and, and kills a small uh, a group of about 20 Philistines, and this kind of sparked a massive onslaught against these enemies, and they were victorious. The Israelites were, were victorious in this onslaught um, against the, 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 the Philistines. We also see another thing that is very interesting at the end of chapter 14. And at the end of chapter 14, it gives us a very, it's not odd what it says, but it's odd where it's placed. It gives us kind of a brief synopsis of Saul's legacy. And it says he was an extremely efficient and, and victorious military leader. Everywhere he turned, he won all these battles and fought all these enemies and overcame all these enemies. And then it also says something interesting. It says everywhere that Saul turned, he caused havoc. And two weeks ago, we focused on that word havoc. That can mean two things simultaneously. It can both mean victory or success. It can also mean chaos and discord. And the point of that, the reason why we focused on that, is we learned that one can be successful in the eyes of the world and also be out of the will of God and do a tremendous amount of damage, havoc. So we had to ask ourselves, are, are, do we understand, are we living in God's will and do we understand that if we don't, we will cause havoc in our own life and other people's lives? So we have to live in the will of God. What we're gonna talk about today, and man, I'll be honest with you, I was looking forward to this chapter uh, because it's difficult. And, and I'm glad I got a little bit of, of extra time to study it because there are some very interesting and very difficult passages that we have to address today. But what we're going to talk about ultimately is this. We're going to ask ourselves, are we living in obedience? And if we are living in obedience, we should be doing everything we can to remove any sin or evil that is in us or around us. Not to, not to ruin anything, but, but, but what we're going to talk about today is that we have to completely annihilate, get rid of any sin that may be in our hearts and around us uh, that could tempt us or persuade us or, or draw us away from God. That's what we're going to talk about today. Here's the other thing I'm going to briefly mention before we get into this. If you've never been to a church that teaches Scripture word for word, verse by verse, it doesn't matter what book of the Bible we pick. And of course, we always pray about it and we feel like God leads us to do certain books we've done about 
34, 36 books of the Bible, you know, all the way through. I've done several of those many times over and over again, like the Gospels and things like that. It is, it is never ceases to amaze me. It, 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 it is so fascinating that every book we choose is always pertinent for the time that we are living in. Even a book that was written 3,000 years ago. And, and listen, it's going to sound like this morning <clears throat> that I picked this chapter because of what's going on in the Middle East right now, and I did not. It just happens to fall exactly where it does right now, and, and, and the, the parallels are, are pretty uncanny, okay? So we'll get into that. We'll talk about some hard things. Before we do that, uh, we'll pray and we'll dive into this. You should have got a notes handout. Everything will be on the screen. If you have the app, uh, just click on Sermon Notes, Experience Community app. If you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament, ninth book of the Old Testament, right? Okay, let's pray. <sighs> Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for everyone in this room this morning. I thank you, God, that they would give up time out of their weekend, that they would come in here, that they would worship, that they would study. And I pray, God, that you bless our church uh, and and bless all the men and women in here, God, um, because of that time that they're giving to you, Lord. We don't just pray for our church, God. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. And we pray, Lord, ultimately that everything we do this morning, that it honors you, blesses you, God, and draws us closer to you. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me read a little bit. Interesting chapter, guys, and then we'll go back and we'll, we'll talk about it. Samuel told Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Saul summoned the troops and counted them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set up an ambush in the Wadi. That's like a, like a dried out riverbed. He warned the Kenites, since you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go on and leave. Get away from the Amalekites or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of the Amalek, uh, of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of all the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Okay, if you have been with me for the last couple of months, we have seen that Saul's future has already been foretold. Several times now we have read in in, in the book of 1 Samuel that Saul is going to lose his kingship, he has been disobedient to God, and all these things are going to take place. His authority is going to be taken from him. So if we know that that's going to happen, Why is Saul given another opportunity to do what is right? Why is he given another opportunity to submit to God's plan and be a good leader? Well, the answer is this. We we have this clash that we see several times in the Bible, many times in the Bible, of predestination and free will. That God knows everything that's going to take place, but we as individuals have a choice in real time. Now, there's a lot of camps in Christianity, right? There's one camp that's all predestination, one camp that's all free will. They both claim to know everything about that and claim that those teachings are exclusive. The first thing is they don't know everything about it. I don't care how many books from 16th century dead white men you have read, you have not got it figured out, predestination and free will. No one does because it's outside of our understanding and the Bible teaches both. And you know what? That's okay. You want to know why? We're not going to understand everything because we're not God. 
And so God does understand it all, and we don't have to have it all figured out. And that's okay with me, and it should be okay with you as well. So many times in the Bible, we see these clash of things that, that we just can't quite wrap our brain around. Now let's take that up a notch. If you get further into this chapter, Saul's test from God is clear, but, but it's tough. And so Saul is told by God to fulfill prophecies that were given in Exodus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 25. That prophecy is, is that the Amalekite people have to be completely annihilated, completely destroyed. Now here's the thing. There are parts of the Bible that require a little bit more work than others. And if we don't put the work into it, we risk being put in a position to where someone will walk up to this. If this hasn't happened to you yet, it will inevitably. They'll say, well, oh, you say your God's a loving God. It says in 1 Samuel 15 to kill babies. How do we answer that? How do we come back from that? Well, first, we need to have some historical knowledge. We need to understand the character of God. And sometimes when we don't fully understand, we just have to put our trust in God because things can easily be taken way out of context. So let's try to figure this passage out a little bit. The first thing we need to look at is, who is this group of people that God says needs to be annihilated? The Amalekites. The Amalekites were a, bar a barbaric, nomadic tribe. And the first time that we really read about the Amalekites in scripture is when the Jewish people are traveling out of Egypt towards the promised land, listen to this, the, the, the nomadic tribe of the uh, Amalekites would come at the back of all the people caravanning towards the promised land and they would scoop up the most vulnerable, the elderly, women, children. They would kidnap them, rape them, murder them. They would sometimes sacrifice the children to their god Baal. They would sacrifice all kinds of people to Baal. They were, they were worshipers of Baal. Worshiping Baal also uh, uh, demanded prostitution, which means they would get women from other nations. We would call this sex slavery nowadays. They would violently rape them. They violently raped children, and they did extreme self-mutilation. These people were beyond evil. They were grotesque. They were awful. They were brutal, and they preyed on the most vulnerable. So it helps us understand a little bit, if not all, but a little bit, as to why these people we're facing the judgment of God. Now, when there is a war or when humans are called to enact the wrath of God, that is called a holy war. Now, biblically speaking, holy wars only took place when God wanted to enact the, the most severe judgment against a people. And when this happened, the, the people who are enacting the justice for God were to go in and they were to give everything to God and destroy it all. Everything was devoted to him and everything was annihilated. Now, do I understand all this? Do I, do I completely have my head wrapped around it? I, I don't, it's hard to understand. But God called for the complete annihilation of the Amalekites. Now here's where we can get a little arrogant sometimes. Well, that's not the way I would do it. Again, you have to remember, I have to remember, we're not God. So Saul did attack the Amalekites. He kinda did what God told him to do. But when he went to attack them, he's like, man, surely God doesn't want me to get rid of all these wonderful animals. Surely he doesn't want me to get rid of all this plunder and riches. Man, I can take Agag and he can kinda be a trophy for me so everyone can think I'm an awesome warrior when I get back. I can just do it my way. So here's the thing. We may not always understand the plans of God, but we're not asked by God to understand everything. We are asked by God to be obedient. And when we start to think that we can take God's plan and alter it and make it better, we are going down an extremely dangerous road, All right? Let's get to the next part. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, when he, uh, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. 
When Samuel came to him, Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel replied, then what is the sound of sheep, goats, and cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took the sheep, goats, and cattle for the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. We'll get to that here in a second. So now we reach the second thing in this chapter that we need to put a little bit of extra study in, a little bit more work in, because it can be taken out of context. God says, I regret making Saul king. This is not the first time in the Bible that, that God says this. He says this back in Genesis chapter six. He regretted making all the humans, right? And he wiped them out. That was the great flood. So several times in the Old Testament, God says, I regret doing this. Now, if we don't do a little bit of study, we, we will take this out of context. People will come to you and go, look, your own God said that he made mistakes. He regretted doing some certain things. And that is not what that word means in that context at all. This is completely different than when we do something and we're like, man, I regret that I did that. God's regret in this context is a lamenting of a decision that he knew he was going to make because it was painful to make it. What I mean by that, it's the same thing. If you're a parent in this room, if your child does something wrong, they're disobedient, they do something evil that could hurt them or hurt other people, you know that you have to punish them. You even know that it's what's best for them and it may be what's best for the people around them, but you still don't like doing it. All you parents know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We know that we have to discipline our children, but it's not always fun to discipline our children. I don't know if it's ever fun to discipline our children, but that's what a good parent does. Do you know that Jesus even says in the New Testament, because people will take that out of context. Well, your, your good loving God punishes people? Man, good loving moms and dads punish their children, they have to. It is not true love. This is why Jesus said, I discipline you because I love you. It's like if you're a parent and your child wants to eat donuts for every single meal. I like donuts, you like donuts, but if all you eat is donuts, you're going to die at a very early age. And if your parents love you, they're gonna sometimes say, hey, let's put some plants in your body, right? <laughs> they don't taste as good as the donuts, but you will live longer. Let's do that. And this is what, God is not referring to vegetables right here, but he's referring to that sometimes he has to do things, but he doesn't like to do those things. And then we see Samuel's response. Man, Samuel gets ticked off. So God knew what was going to happen. But listen, this is important. Here's that predestination free will. God knew what was going to happen, but it's still important that we understand that Saul had a choice. And his selfish pursuit made Samuel angry. And Samuel cried out to God all night long. You know what we learned from this? Sin should upset us a lot more than I think it does in the Western world. I, don't, I think we've become desensitized to sin. I think we've become desensitized to sin, and I think a lot of us have bought into a false narrative that as long as I'm not a serial killer, I'll, I'll, I'll go to heaven, right? As long as I'm good, by my own estimation, I, everything's good. And these things are false. And so I think that, that when we see people that, that know the truth but choose not to live it, guys, that should shatter our heart. And quite frankly, it should drive us to our faces sometimes in prayer for those people. 
That's what Samuel is doing. He's crying out to God, touch Saul's heart, help us, bless our nation, keep your hand on us. Sin should trouble us because sin hurts people who do it. Not only does sin hurt people that do, that, that, that do it, sin has a ripple effect. So if you, if you cheat on your husband, that doesn't just hurt your husband, it hurts your children. It will hurt your grandchildren. There's a ripple effect to that. And that's why we hate sin. And that's why sin should disturb us and bother us. Another thing that should bother us is arrogance. After choosing to do it his way, look what Saul does. He, he did not fulfill everything God told him to do, but he thought he was such a great guy. He leaves town and he builds a monument to himself. And then when Samuel approaches him, he's so oblivious and so self-absorbed. He goes, hey, I did everything the way I'm supposed to. And Samuel's like, well, why do I hear animals? Oh, oh, oh the troops did that. So the same guy that builds a monument to himself because he thinks, he thinks he's such a great leader is the same guy who said, uh, well, my troops don't do what I tell them to do. Isn't that interesting? This guy's so oblivious. He's so self-absorbed. And when we are arrogant and when we are self-centered and selfish people, it, it distorts our ability to see the will of God. It distorts our ability to, to see how we are to live through the word of God. And we blame everyone else and we pass off responsibility when we need to grow up and own our actions. We talk about this all the time. We blame everyone for things in our life. Well, I, you know, I stopped going to church because 12 years ago I walked in somewhere and no one shook my hand. Man, I love you. Grow up, man. I love you. Listen, do you know this place was not built so people can pat you on the back? This place was built so we can come in and worship the almighty God. I hope someone shook your hand. I hope, listen, I hope people were nice to you. That's not why this place was built. This place was built so we can come together and give our respect and honor to God and learn more about him. But man, we are such a hyper offended, self-centered, egotistical, entitled society. Man, somebody, somebody better tell me I'm good everywhere I look or I'm gonna get my feelings hurt. Man, it's self-centered. And, and quite frankly, it's kind of ridiculous and childish. So we need, to quit, we need to quit the blame shifting, right? We need to quit the irresponsibility because th here's the thing. It is impossible to understand the will of God when we're constantly just looking at ourselves. It is impossible. So self-centeredness not only distorts our ability to see what God is doing, look at this. The Bible actually says that when we are prideful and arrogant and self-centered, that God pushes us away. James 4, 6. He resists the proud, and draws near to the humble. Notice that Saul calls God your God. Two times here, and he's gonna do it two times more in the next section we're gonna read a little bit later. And so he tries to convince Sam, I did everything right, couldn't be my fault. Now look at this, perhaps in Saul's arrogance, he thought he could take the plan of God, listen to me, alter it, twist it, turn it a little bit, and it would just be a much better plan. It'd work out much better for him, much better for everyone else. We don't wanna get rid of all these things, God. Don't you know? And we read this and we go, man, that is the height of arrogance for Saul to think he can take the word of God, pull things out he doesn't like, insert things he does like and run with that. And you have whole denominations right now that profess to be Christians who say, hey, look, it's 2023. We're pretty evolved. These archaic men who wrote this book a long time ago, they didn't really know what they were talking about. Let's pull this out. Let's put this in. And we do the same thing. And I'm going to tell you what, man, the last, couple of, the last couple of sentences in this entire book say, don't add, don't take away from it. But we do it because we somehow think that we are smarter than God, that, that we can take God's ideas and God, let me, let me make those a little bit better for you. Because it's 2023 after all, right? We've changed God, but he hasn't. That's the problem. And we'll get to that here in a second. The other danger is this. Saul forgot where he had come from. Samuel goes, Saul, don't you remember when you were unimportant? Don't you remember when you were nothing? And now you're the king. You're the leader of the people of God. But Saul had forgotten the provision of God. He had forgotten the grace and mercy of God. And so here's where we need to make sure that we never go. Now listen, 
I know that God relieves us of, of the pain of the past, of the shame and the guilt in the past. He forgives us, I know. But listen, I pray that none of us in this room forget the ditch that God pulled us out of. Now listen, there are scars that we have in this life. And I don't, I have scars all over my body because I've been really stupid. But there, there, the, those scars don't hurt when I touch them, but they remind me of the stupid things I did to get the scar. I pray that you never lose your scars. And I know that sounds like a crazy thing to pray, but what that does is when we remember the ditch that God brought us out of, it keeps us dependent on God because we know where our provision comes from. It keeps us humble because we know the only way that we are to be saved and changed is through him. And we need not forget where God has brought us from, okay? Listen, this next part is fascinating. Short part, but very fascinating. Okay, so in verse 21, Saul is bragging about all the sacrifices he's going to give God, right? Because God needs something from Saul. That's how arrogant he is. I'm gonna give him all these sacrifices. Look at how Samuel responds. Then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Okay, now we're gonna get into something pretty interesting here. The first thing that Samuel says, and, and, and this is very, very important, it's an Old Testament and New Testament fundamental principle that obedience is better than sacrifice. So Saul goes, look, I'm gonna give all these things to God. I'm gonna give all these sacrifices to God. And Samuel goes, Saul, hold on. God wants consistent obedience more than he wants your periodic gifts to him. Now listen, I'm, I'm not talking about any, maybe I am talking about someone in this room, but I'm not intentionally talking about anyone in this room. But I want us to be honest about this. Many self-professing Christians only obey the word of God they only give to their church or their community. They only pay attention to the teachings of the word of God and sacrifice their time either during times of excess, right? Well, I got a bonus check. Maybe I'll give something to the church this time or in times of extreme need. And the only time that we, we give anything to God is when we just feel like we have some extra or we, we don't have as much as we would like. Now, let me tell you what that is. And let me tell you what it isn't. It isn't a relationship. Imagine if you're a husband in this room and the only time your wife ever wants to be intimate with you is when she wants something material out of you. That wouldn't feel very good, would it? Imagine if you're a woman in this room and your husband only, only treats you like a commodity. He doesn't wanna to talk to you. He doesn't wanna take you out. He doesn't wanna know anything more about you. He just wants some periodic pleasure from you. You know what? That's not a wife, that's a prostitute. And we tend to treat God like that sometimes, don't we? That's not a relationship. And so what that means is sacrifice without obedience is useless. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't even need your time. He's eternal. What he wants is a consistent relationship with you. Now, of course, time and sacrifice and giving comes along with that, but he wants consistency. And the Bible says this multiple times. Now, look, let's, let's again, let's take it up a notch. Samuel says that when we do this, it is similar to divination. Divination is the, the, the occult practice of making certain sacrifices, doing certain things, giving those over for the sake of receiving something. And now I've been to Salem, Massachusetts a gazillion times. And in fact, my, my, my in-laws, my, my mother-in-law is from Peabody, Mass, which is right next to Salem, Mass. And I've been up there, I'll actually be up there next month with a couple of people working with some churches. Go up there a lot. When I go up there, one of the places I tend to take people, and I hope this doesn't offend anyone here, but I want them to see it, is there are a couple of places that are not campy witchcraft places. There's plenty of those. It is legitimate witchcraft run by legitimate witches, owned by witches, it's real. And when you walk in there, they have candles and they have spells and they have different kinds of uh, powders and things like that. They have an altar built in the back where you can put pictures of people and all kinds of stuff. And you buy these things and you perform these acts in the hopes of being blessed financially or with sex or relationship or whatever the case may be. It is you doing this act, this ritual act, 
just to get something out of it. Now listen, when we think we can periodically sacrifice things to God to get God to do some things for us, the Bible says we are acting in the same vein as witchcraft. Seriously, it's right there in the scripture. And people think I'm pulling this stuff out of thin air. It's right there. And how many self-professing Christians are really doing the same base ritual acts as, as people who are, who are indulging in the occult. And so Samuel goes, it's the same thing. He goes on to say that our defiance of God is like idolatry. That when we live in defiance of God, we are in essence elevating ourselves up to God's ourself because we will not submit to the true God. And in that defiance, Samuel says, Saul, because you've lifted yourself up to that status, and you think what you, you know what's best, you're gonna be rejected. Now listen, God doesn't reject us because he doesn't love us. The rejection that the Bible talks about is our eternity. And what we receive in eternity is what we've wanted our entire lives. What do I mean by that? If our life is devoted to being in a relationship with God, our eternal reward is being with God forever. If our entire life is devoted to self and we want God to butt out, our eternity will be just that. It will be a complete eternal existence without any presence of God. Why do we receive that? Because that's what we've lived for. And listen, I don't know if hell is a literal fire and brimstone. I don't know. But I know that hell will be an eternal separation from God. And the Bible says everything that is good comes from God. Imagine an existence with billions and billions of people with absolutely no shred of goodness in them. That's worse than fire and brimstone. That is ugly, that is nasty, that is terrifying, okay? Last part. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command in your words because I was afraid of the people. I highlighted this. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not like man who changes his mind. Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow and worship to the Lord your God. Then Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul bowed down to the Lord. Samuel said, bring me King Agag of Amalek. Agag came into him trembling, for he thought, certainly the bitterness of death has come. Samuel declared, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. Then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul, even to this day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. So this is a very, very important point, maybe the most important point of today, because it's really the root of everything that happened today. Saul admits that he was more concerned about whatever, what, what, what everyone else thought about him than he was about obeying the commands of God. And he seems not to ever truly repent of this because in the second half of, of that portion that I just read, he said, please forgive me, please forgive me and make sure that I look good in front of the elders and my people and all of Israel. So it's still about him. It's still about people affirming him. And we'll get to what I think is the greatest addiction of the Western world right now. And that is the affirmation of people. We are a addicted to it. There are people literally dying 
for the affirmation of others. There have been TikTokers and YouTubers who have literally fallen off cliffs, off buildings. They have died trying to get a shot of them doing something crazy enough that will get them lots of little thumbs, lots of little hearts. Now we monetize that so we even pay people for getting X amount of hearts and thumbs and things like that. And so now there's even an extra incentive for these these people to, to base their whole life around getting this attention. And here's the thing, whether it's on social media or whether it's just us walking around trying to constantly impress people, that draw to affirmation of people will assuredly draw us away from God. It will pull us away from God. So God knew that Saul wouldn't repent and change. So Saul's throne was gonna be given to another. We know that's gonna be King David. We'll actually meet him in the next chapter. And then Samuel says, God is not like man. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't lie. He doesn't tell lies like humans do. Now, when it says he doesn't change his mind, that doesn't mean that things in our life can't change. When we humble ourselves and give our life to Jesus, everything changes. He changes everything. What this is referring to is the nature of God. That God was the same when he created the foundations of the earth. He was the same when he sent his only son to die on the cross. He'll be the same in eternity. And sometimes people go, well, there's the Old Testament God and the New Testament. It's the same God. Same brain, same thoughts, same patterns, same everything. It's God. And God is faithful and he is true and he is benevolent and he is consistent. And if we will humble ourselves, we we become benefactors of that. We, We benefit from his faithfulness and his consistency. So here is the last part that is just a little tough to wrap your brain around. The hacking of Agag by Samuel. The word hacking is gruesome enough and then you throw in pieces after that and you're like, that's pretty rough. And it's one of those hard to understand parts of the Bible. Now again, it would help us to understand a little bit who this Agag individual was. We already know that he was the leader of, 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 of awful people that would prey on the vulnerable. They would rape women, kill women, kill the elderly, kill men, of course, as well, kill and sacrifice children to their false god. And he was the leader of this. He was a, a cold-blooded murderer. He was a rapist. He was, in essence, a terrorist. And it was the job of the governmental authority to execute any threats to innocent people. Now, where do we get that from? We get that from Romans chapter 13. Read, read verse four. Read 13, four if you get bored today. And it essentially says that the sword of God's wrath has been given to the government to enact his justice at times. Now we go, oh, that's scary. It actually says, if you're following the law, you have nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> that's what Romans chapter 13, verse three says. And so sometimes, I'm not saying that the government is always righteous and good, but governmental systems, God uses at times to inflict justice and sometimes his wrath on people. That's why we have prisons. That's why we even have death penalties. That's why uh, uh, there is sometimes a time for war and a time for, for to defend innocent people. And so Leviticus chapter six, verse four, also helps us understand a little bit why Samuel had to do what he had to do. Leviticus 6.4 teaches that if we wrongfully take anything that doesn't belong to us, if we're to be forgiven by God, we have to give it back. Saul was told to go to the Amalekites and to wipe out all of them. Remember, holy wars, we give everything to God and everything has to be annihilated because it's God's, it's not ours. So he went in and he took Agag as a trophy. And Agag wasn't his to take. Agag belonged to God. God was going to inflict his justice and his decision on Agag. So the only way to make things right with God was to give back to God what was his. And I know it sounds gruesome, right? And it's, 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 it's hard to understand. But Samuel had to hack him to death right there in order to fulfill, to finish the command, to completely wipe out the Amalekites. Why? Because God, because he is just, God will not let the persecution and and, and violation of innocent people go unaccounted for. He will not. And we see that in this account. 
And then it says that Samuel never saw Saul again. It says that Samuel mourned for Saul. Why? Because Samuel knew the road that Saul was walking down. Saul was walking down a road of destruction away from God. And it even says that God regretted. There's that word again, which which we know means to mourn, to be saddened by. God regretted what what was to become of Saul. What do we learn? We learn that there are times where we need to walk away from places. Sometimes we need to get away from certain places. There are certain places that Christians just shouldn't be. We need to get away from it. There are times we need to walk away from certain things. There are certain things that we just shouldn't engage in. Here's the tough one. There are also times when we have to walk away from people, that we have to have safe boundaries. That doesn't mean that we don't love them. It doesn't mean that we don't mourn for them, pray for them, cry out to God all night long for them, but it may not be healthy to be around them because of our family, even for ourselves, for other people around us, and we have to put up a wall. We have to put up a boundary and step away, okay? We've talked about some heavy stuff this morning, heavy stuff, pertinent stuff. Let's bring it in a little bit. The first thing is this. Several times in the Bible, there are things that historically happened in the Old Testament that we use as metaphors today. What do I mean by that? Um, The majority of us in this room have probably never been to Egypt. I've never been to Egypt. I've flown over Egypt, but I've I've, I've never touched down in Egypt. Sometimes you'll hear in the Christian world, we'll use the metaphor, we don't wanna go back to Egypt. That doesn't mean literally the geographical country of Egypt. That means going back to captivity, to slavery, to sin, okay? We don't wanna go back to Egypt. And so there is a similar metaphor that we pick up from this chapter. The story of Saul and the Amalekites works as a metaphor, as an object lesson for us. That one, we have to be obedient to God, and two, we have to identify and completely annihilate all the sin that may be residing in our heart. We do that through repentance, where we ask God to forgive us of us, forgive us of it, and we move away from it, okay? If we fail to remove, repent of, the evil that is in us or around us, we will inevitably fall to it. Look at the story. Saul goes, well, I did what God wanted me to do. I wiped out the Amalekites. He wiped out 99% of the Amalekites. Listen to me. But there was still that 1% left. Well, I've asked God to forgive me all these things, but I have compartmentalized this one sin over here. But that's okay. I did 99% inevitably that 1% will get you. It will get you. And if we fail to address it, there will be eternal damage that will be done. It will hurt others. It will hurt you. It will compromise your relationship with God. We've got to address all of it. We've got to annihilate all of it. We also learn today that God resists selfishness. He resists pride and arrogance. Not only does God push away from self-centered people, James 4, 6, but selfishness will yield God-implemented consequences. And God sometimes does those consequences to humble us or to protect people around us. So we don't want to be self-centered. We don't want to be prideful. We don't want to go down that road. Selfishness also distorts our ability to discern God's will to know what the truth is, to know what's going on. Listen, it's impossible to see what God is doing when we're always looking in the mirror. It's impossible to see what God is doing when we're always just fixated on ourselves. We can't see the word of God. We can't see the truth. We're too worried about our truth versus the truth. We're so worried about elevating our plans versus submitting to his plans. And our selfishness distorts our ability to to know what God wants to do in our life. And sometimes we will even deceive ourselves like Saul to say, I'm doing everything God wanted me to do. But it's really selfishness. You, You don't know how to discern what God really wants you to do. We also learned that obedience is always greater than sacrifice. Samuel is not the only one that taught this principle. Jesus Christ himself taught this principle. In Matthew chapter nine, Jesus says, study and understand what this means. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. 
If Jesus says it, listen, if the word at all says it, we should take it into account. If Jesus, if it's in red letters, you should really take note of that. And in red letters, it says, obedience is better than sacrifice. So we have to ask ourselves, do we truly have a relationship with God? Or do we only make sacrifices when we, when we get the bonus check? Or do we only make sacrifices when we want God to do us a favor? Hey, I'm in dire straits here, I need help. Do we only give our time when we think we're gonna get something out of it? Or do we live in an actual relationship with God? Do we understand that throwing sacrifices at God in the hopes of getting him to do us a favor, it's no different than witchcraft. That's, that's Bible, no different than witchcraft. We need to be careful with this, guys. And then the last thing that we talked about, and it may be the one that we have the hardest time with, and it's kind of maybe the root of all the problems that are in this chapter. Whose approval are we seeking? Again, one of the biggest problems today is this addiction to the affirmation of people. You know, we can blame this on a lot of stuff. You know, this is one of the first generations we've seen that have grown up fatherless. A lot of people seeking affirmation because they never got it from, from a father. A lot of people who, are, who, who are, are struggling in all kinds of ways. And so we seek this affirmation. Listen, the, the pursuit of affirmation in and of itself is not evil. It's where we go to get that affirmation. We should be going to the Lord, wanting his affirmation. And he is gracious and quick to forgive. And his spirit empowers us and walks with us and guides us. And he gives us a true sense of value and contentment and peace. But listen, if we are more concerned with people's opinions over God's opinion, we will gravitate away from God. And when we gravitate away from God, we forfeit salvation. We forfeit peace. We forfeit fulfillment and contentment. Why? Because we have walked away from the truth. And the only thing that sets us free is the truth. Not my truth, not your truth, the truth. It's the only thing that sets us free. So, so again, this isn't one of those like fall on the floor and, and, and weep uh, sermons. This is one of those things that I hope that you take this. I got a couple questions for you and we're done. I hope you take this and ponder it and meditate on it and pray about it and maybe get alone and ask yourself honestly, how am I doing with these things? And the first thing, guys, man, and I can't, and this isn't just for you, I have to do this all the time. Is there any unrepented, unaddressed sin in our hearts? Do we understand that if we fail to address this, it will come back and it will get us? If we fail to address the sin in our hearts, 32, 23, but if you don't do this, you will certainly sin against the Lord and be sure your sin will catch up with you. That's what it says in Numbers 32, 23. Have we asked God to examine our hearts? Have we asked God to examine every corner of us? God, point out to me anything that you don't want and I'll ask you for forgiveness and I'll change. Are we deliberately working on being humble people? less self-centered? Are we working on, 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 on doing what John the Baptist said, less of me, more of you? It's not all about me all the time. I know that's what America crams down your throat all the time, but the universe does not revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around the creator. And we are called to not only put him first, but to treat others the way we would like to be treated. That means the world doesn't stop when I'm upset about something. It doesn't mean that I can do whatever I want to do all the time. Are we, are we working, intentionally working on making it less about us? Do we live in obedience to God? Or do we just periodically make sacrifices when we have a little extra or we need something? And again, for the fourth or fifth time, that is not relationship. That is not relationship. And then the last question, whose approval do we really seek? 
Whose approval do we really care about the most? Now listen, that can always be taken way out of context. You know, someone's gonna leave here and go, well, Corey says it doesn't matter what other people think about me. I'm gonna put my leather King James Version Bible in the car, I'm gonna go to Starbucks, beat people with it. Because it's the truth, right? That's not it. The Bible even says we should have a good reputation with other people, even non-believers, that we should have a good reputation to the best of our abilities. What we're talking about is whose principles do we live by? Whose will are we following? Of course, we should have a good reputation for those around us, but ultimately, I will, I will sacrifice it all to be in God's will. Okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavy stuff this morning, guys. Heavy stuff. You know, it, it, it's only in addressing the heavy content, though, that we can live in freedom. It is only by addressing these hard things that, that, that our hearts can actually be light and free. That we can, that we can rest at night knowing that we're, we're good with our creator, that we have a relationship with him. We don't need to be intimidated by hard content. We just... We just need to do what the word tells us to do. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer or, or maybe you're a new believer, but you got a lot of questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Savut is up here, okay? If you have any questions for Savut, he would be more than happy to talk with you. Do his best to answer any questions you may have and uh, whatever you may need. There are men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything in your life, anything at all. They'd be more than happy to pray with you. And then the last thing is all the way around this room, there is communion. Wherever you see a lamp on a table and then the majority of these pillars in the room. Now, now listen, and, and I don't want you to rush out of this and, and take this for granted. Please be respectful during this time. But here's why, one of the reasons why we do communion. This is a good time to remind us to ask God to examine our hearts. If there's anything that we need to repent of, this is the time to address it. We can do it at any time, but this is a very unusual and unique time, a good opportunity for us to say, God, if there's anything in my heart, forgive me, show me. And then everyone who repents from God for their sin for, or, or to God for their sin, we're welcome to take the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Jesus Christ and rejoice in the fact that, that, that God sent his son to die for us and, and raise from the dead for us so we can be saved. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much for everything you've done, God. Lord, we live in heavy times. Lord, this is heavy scripture that we covered today, God. But, but Lord, don't, don't let us walk out of here discouraged, God. But Lord, let us be encouraged that if we, if, if we will just be obedient to you, live in relationship with you, God, that we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be afraid of or anxious about, God, that, that we can live in peace and fulfillment and contentment as, as long as we have you, God. But Lord, let us also know that if we are not living in your will, God, that there are, there are ramifications for that and chaos that comes with that. So God, keep your hand on us, Lord. Reveal anything in our lives that needs to be removed or repented of, God. Walk with us, protect us, guide us, bless every man and woman in this room right now, God, their families, their homes. Lord, we just pray your grace on us, Lord, because we need it. We thank you, we love you, Father. We pray all these things in your son's name, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome to help yourself. Love you guys so much.